Our nation has been shaken to its core and people everywhere are crying out for answers. What on earth is going on here? How can this be? We're missing the voice. The voice of the future generations. Us. If Us. you have neither the wit nor the courage to lead, then at least have the wisdom and the decency to follow, 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 follow. My name is Natalie McDonald and I'm Vice President of Strategy and Development at La Trobe University. And I would like to begin this evening by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet tonight and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I'm delighted to be here this evening for tonight's Ideas and Society event. La Trobe's Vice-Chancellor's Fellow, Emeritus Professor Robert Mann, has been running the Ideas and Society event since 2012. Robert, I'd like to thank you for your leadership and for all involved in organising tonight. It takes a great deal of effort and work to bring together events like this, and on behalf of all of us here tonight, we'd like to thank you. German philosopher, diplomat and education reformer Wilhelm von Humboldt described a university as a community of scholars and students engaged in a common search for truth. It's perhaps true to say that over recent years and decades, the debate and search for truth surrounding our climate has been a subject to divide our nation and the world. One former Prime Minister of this country called climate change the greatest moral, economic and social challenge of our time, while another had a whole different view, describing climate change as probably doing good in a speech <laughs> where he likened policies to combat climate change to primitive people once killing goats to appease the volcano gods. Internationally, the world's largest economy has been as equally polarised as our own in the past, with the Trump administration withdrawing from the Obama administration's Paris targets. But tonight, this is an opportunity to hear from four leaders in the climate change debate in Australia, to hear their opinions and ideas, and to hear how they feel society can be brought together to develop a plan to tackle these significant challenges. Tonight's panel also perhaps reflects the changing nature of the debate, with speakers who have been involved in the debate for many, many decades, and others who weren't born when the Kyoto Protocol was signed. We've seen over the past year the youth of today rally significantly around the issue of climate change, with Greta Thunberg leading a global movement to appeal for action on climate change and also dividing public opinion with school strikes. We've got some fabulous speakers lined up tonight and I will give a short bio of each. Bob Brown is a name synonymous with the environment in Australia, over the, from the fight over Franklin Dam to his recent fight to stop Adani. He's been an activist for the environment over many, many decades. He was elected to the Tasmanian State Parliament in 1983 and achieved the expansion of the Tasmanian World Heritage Area. In 1996, Bob was elected to the Senate where he was part of the national debate on issues like climate change, democracy, preventative health care, conservation and human rights. Bob resigned from the Senate in June 2012 to establish the Bob Brown Foundation a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to supporting action campaigns for the environment in Australia and in our region. David Ritter is a native title lawyer and an academic. He spent five years with Greenpeace in the UK and in 2012 he came back to Australia to head up Greenpeace Australia Pacific, focused on making Greenpeace campaigns as effective as possible. He is a published author and his most recent book, The Coal Truth, The Fight to Stop Adani, Defeat the Big Polluters and Reclaim Our Democracy is one you might want to pick up. Dr Amanda Carl is the CEO of The Next Economy. Originally trained as an anthropologist, Amanda has spent over two decades working on the community development projects across Asia, the Pacific and regional Australia. The focus of her work at The Next Economy is to support communities to develop more resilient, just and sustainable regional economies. Most of this work involves supporting regional communities in Australia. Maisha Mohn is a Year 12 student at Fintona Girls School. She has gained prominence with her interviews on the Today Show and various media outlets in promotion of the school strikes across Australia. Her passion for climate change and sustainability has manifested in a new initiative, Climate Leaders, and her tenure as Environment Captain at her school. 
She continues her amazing advocacy with the school strike for climate as a Melbourne strike organiser and spokesperson. Her interests are not limited to environmental activism, but also extend to women's rights and social equality. I'm so pleased to be here tonight, and I'm now going to hand over to Professor Katie Holmes. So I assume that you're here in the hope that our panel will offer some ways to help us think about and also to act on the challenges before us. In selecting our panellists for tonight, Professor Robert Mann was very keen that we have leaders that represent different generations of activists. And we've ordered our speakers with that in mind, moving from the father of environmental activism <laughs> in Australia, Bob Brown, through to one of its most recent warriors in Maisha Moyn. Bob, I'd like you to take the podium. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan. Well, Thank you, Latrobe, and thank you for taking the lead that you are with Climate Change Action. I um, heard last Thursday new legislation go through the Australian Parliament, opposed by the Greens and Andrew Wilkie, but uh, supported by every other parliamentarian, that uh, prohibits, with penalties from one to four years, uh, the planning of any invasion of farmlands in Australia uh, for any protest purposes. Uh, it also does the same thing in private forests or on fish farms, industrial fish farms. And here we have the face of the ruling plutocracy, that is the wealth, the corporations, uh, th working through board governments and big political parties and indeed um, independents as well moving to stem off uh, a much wider protest that is coming down the line from people who see in action on the uh, looming destruction of the biosphere upon which we all depend. But a more insidious invasion has taken on a place on our farmlands which has had the corporate sector in the main as well as the political parties wholeheartedly supporting the invasion so that with the Murray-Darling Basin now in places at least in the worst drought in uh, recorded human history and some scientists looking at it go back uh, quite some centuries, city of Dubbo, 34,000 people out of water uh, within eight weeks unprecedented, unplanned, uh, unthought about. Uh, but uh, if you, as we watch our public and private news channels looking for reasons for this, repeatedly we see this crisis for our nation, which is reflected right around the planet, going without even a mention of the invaders. And the invaders, of course, are the greenhouse gas emissions going into the atmosphere from coal burning coal, um, from burning gas, from burning oil and from the destruction of forests. And at the time when laws are coming in to say you physically cannot go on to a farm in uh, Australia, or you certainly can't inveigle other people to do that, the, the case of course is for animal rights, uh, this invasion continues. The cost of the drought on current estimates will be $12.5 billion, and that money will be taken from schools and hospitals and um, all other amenities in our society, uh, as if uh, this was something that's not caused, doesn't have a causal entity, and yet we do know what the cause is, and we know it's getting worse. And so we find ourselves in a climate emergency of unprecedented proportions, Together with a population of 8 billion, it was 2.5 billion when I came onto the planet in 1944, and a consumptive growth uh, and philosophy of materialism, which go together to present us with the end of life on planet as we know it. Let me quote from the wonderful scientist who represents Australia, amongst others, on the International Panel of um, uh, Climate Investigators warning the world about what's going on. Joelle Jurgis, who wrote this in the current monthly, I quote from her essay, we know that carbon dioxide concentrations have risen from pre-industrial levels 
of 280 parts per million to approximately 410 parts per million, the highest recorded in at least 3 million years. Without major mitigation efforts, we are likely to double pre-industrial levels to 560 parts per million by around 2060. That's when um, children being born at the moment will reach their 40 or 41st birthday. When the IPCC's fifth assessment report was published in 2013, it estimated that such a doubling of carbon dioxide was likely to produce warming up to 4.5 degrees as Earth reaches the new equilibrium. Well, now early reports are predicting, this is the latest reports, that a doubling of carbon dioxide may in fact produce between 3, 2.8 and 5.8, 6 degrees of warming. Incredibly, at least eight of the latest models produced by leading research centres around the world are showing climate sensitivity of 5 degrees or more. Whereas just a couple of months ago, it was predicted that with 6 degrees warming, this is another a panel of uh, scientists, all life on Earth will finish. And they're legislating to stop people protesting. Queensland's just legislated. The Queensland Labor government, on the last week of last month, looking at the Wangan and Jagalingu people camped on their land as a protest against the Adani mine, legislated to abolish native title and give that land from under them to Gautam Adani, the Indian billionaire. And the response to this has been almost universal shrug of the shoulders. You know, ladies and gentlemen, history is full of this inertia, this ability to face an oncoming, an onrush. We saw it with Constant the fall of Constantinople in 1453. It was there with the discussions in the Duma, the Russian parliament, as Lenin stepped off the train in 1917. It was there when uh, Chamberlain flew back to London in 1937, waving peace in our time, a, a signatured uh, pact with Hitler, and a million people danced in the streets in London and the church bells rang 18 months before they were at war. Now, the question for all of us is what are we going to do about this? It's a very testing question. Here are some potential hints besides I know we're going to all be there on Friday. But it will require millions of people in the streets. It will require millions of us striking as the children and youngsters will be doing around the world on Friday in a way that forces our authorities to take notice. 90% of Australians voted for more coal mines, more oil wells, more publicly funded coal seam gas in May this year. What on earth is going on here? How can this be? And as Bertrand Russell said, the problem with the world is that the stupid are cocksure and the intelligent are full of self-doubt. Well, friends, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody here is intelligent, we've got to get over it and we've got to get active. I've said that I'd go back up to the Adani site to join the protest there, those brave people making a stand for this planet, and I will. I've said that uh, I will be back in the Tasmanian forest, the same with the Victorian forests, as what the United Nations says is the best single hedge against climate change is to stop destroying forests. Here we have five million people just down off the hills of the greatest carbon hedge on the planet. Those great forests of Victoria, while they're felled, doing nothing. And it's not good enough. And we all have to look into our hearts and not wait for somebody else. And this means going down to our local politician's office. Yes, those Labor people destroying those forests and promoting more coal mines, as well as the Liberals and the Nationals and the rest, and sitting there and, in very clear terms, confronting our politicians and saying, what are you going to do about it? Because I'll vote you out if you don't change what you're doing. It does require funding, tithing, our wealth. We are extremely wealthy in Australia to activist groups like Greenpeace so that they can raise the level of activity, even as the laws come down in this age of plutocracy, to prevent protest, which might upset the corporate sector 
which Abraham Lincoln warned in 1857, would, if not tackled, usurp the throne of democracy, take away our powers. Well, we didn't act on that, and they have overtaken that power, and we need to take it back. And here we are in an extraordinary situation in Australia in 2019, where in the corporate sector are good people taking action for climate change and demanding it of government while the government does nothing. And our Prime Minister has said he has an action plan on climate change. And I'll read you his action plan from the editorial of the Saturday paper this week. I pray for that rain everywhere else around the country. He's talking about the drought. And I do pray for that rain, and I would encourage others who believe in the power of prayer to pray for that rain and pray for our farmers too. Please do that. Well, Prime Minister, you are the most powerful person in this country, and there will not be divine intervention. And it is your responsibility to take a lead in this nation to end the process which has brought upon us all. This destructive drought, those bushfires, these increasingly powerfully destructive storms. And what when one like the Bahamas goes through Brisbane, as our scientists are saying, is coming down the line, perhaps in our lifetimes. So it's up to us, we older, wealthier people, to fund these young firebrands who have taken up the cudgel. Thank God for Greta. Thank God for the Castlemaine kids. Thank God for those who are going to be there on Friday, backed by us. But we have the money, we have the influence, we have the leadership potential as they grow in strength. And let nobody stand back, be reticent in supporting their action in saving this planet. It is in our hands. The onus is on us. And unlike that meteor or asteroid which crashed into the planet 65 million years ago and sent the dinosaurs to extinction, we can turn ourselves around. We need to share the bounty of this planet. We need to pull in our belts. We need to change governments. We need to ensure that every child on this planet has an education. And above all, we need to put an end to the burning of fossil fuels, not in 2030, not in 2050, but now. Five times the action that we're taking now is required if we're going to stop this onrushing disaster in its tracks. We did that in World War I. We did that in World War II. We can do it in 2019. But it's going to take a rebellion of the people. And we'll see something of that rebellion on Friday. With our young is our hope. But with our established people, ourselves, is this call for us to take the leadership the power, use the money, use the influence that we have because the earth depends upon it. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. So the, the question that was uh, served up tonight was uh, to talk about what now for the climate movement. Um, like Bob, though, I think actually the question is more what now for the government? But in framing this question, I want to go back to a recent night that probably looms quite large in the minds of most of those here, and that is the night of the 20th of May. Now, I was at home with my partner and our two daughters and some of our best mates and their kids, and we'd all had democracy sausage, of course, but, you know, that wasn't enough, so we ordered in some local pizza and we sat round to... Uh, experience the count. And look, I think it's fair to say it was a mixed night. On the upside, the pizza was excellent. <laughs> and while it's not quite as joyful as teaching your kids how to fly a kite or swim or ride a bike, there's no doubt that it's really important and it is memorable teaching your kids about the functioning of democracy. It's not always entirely easy to explain, um, but it's important and it is memorable. But there was the downside as well. The Morrison government was returned without a shred of credible climate or energy policy to its name. Now, my eldest daughter is only 10, but her verdict on the night was clear. 
Dad, she said, this is a little bit scary. And she was right. And the result was scary because, as we've already heard, the climate emergency is upon us. The severe climate damage is already affecting our country. The storms are ripping us up. The fires are burning us. The drought is unprecedented. There are ecological disasters and there is worse to come. Now, so far, Scott Morrison's government has shown a complete disdain for the wise counsel and warnings of experts and scientists and emergency workers. Last week, though, confirmation of the seriousness of the climate emergency came from a source that I am hopeful they may be more likely to heed. I speak, of course, of none other than Australia's greatest test wicket-taker, Shane Warne. Am I wrong to hope that maybe ScoMo will listen to Warney? <laughs> so in case you missed it, Shane Warne described the climate emergency as humanity's most pressing challenge and said rightly that it would be wrong to just put your head in the sand. Now the thing that I think is really significant about this is Shane Warne is making these statements once he has been confronted with the reality of what climate means for his former workplace, the cricket pitch. And in that sense, Warney is speaking for every farmer, for every parent, for every emergency worker, for every business owner, for every child, for every quiet Australian, for every pet, for every farm animal, every coral reef, every river, every rainforest, and everyone and everything else that faces the impacts of the climate emergency in their real world, in their jobs, in their homes, in their ecosystems. This is the physical reality. Yet the Morrison government's response to this physical reality is worse than negligent. They have no credible mechanism for reducing the emissions that are driving the climate emergency. They have no plan at all for phasing out coal, which is Australia's biggest driver of the climate emergency. Worse still, Morrison and co are actively looking for ways to increase subsidies for propping up big coal. And let's remember, coal doesn't just pollute our climate, it also pollutes more directly through air pollution for pollution into our waters. It directly damages our health. According to one study, 279 people die early every year as a consequence of coal-related air pollution. And you've got to ask yourself, just in a straight-out technological sense, why are we even having this conversation? Surely the age of the dangerous, polluting, old coal-fired power stations is over. I mean, who among us continues to defend the use of a bucket under the bed rather than a flushing toilet? Who among us says, well, yes, the dial-up modems, they are infinitely preferable to fast-speed internet? Why is there even any argument about getting rid of dirty, polluting, out-of-date and unreliable coal and replacing it with clean energy, particularly now that renewables are cheaper as new build than fossil fuels? So in summary, the first duty of government is the security of our citizens and in the context of the climate emergency, our politicians are failing dismally to discharge that duty. So as my eldest said, yep, it is indeed a little bit scary. But as Raymond Williams once said, to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And the truth is that great change is non-linear and history is unpredictable. Since the election, we have seen an incredible and unprecedented surge in climate activism in our country. We have seen it across all sectors and all geographies of our national community. These are people who are standing up and determined to make hope possible. In Rebecca Solnit's phrase, this is hope in the dark. Now, speaking from purely a Greenpeace perspective, we have experienced an unparalleled rush in people wanting to get involved. New people, tens of thousands signing up online hundreds signing up for trainings all over the country. 
more than 40 new local groups in the 100 days after Morrison was re-elected. All over Australia, communities are organising anew to demand the early closure of dirty, polluting coal-fired power stations. But of course, the phenomenon is wider than Greenpeace. The surge in support for the school strikers on climate is fantastic. Parents, carers, community members, my own email is full of parents at our locate school working out who's going to take whom and who's going to be responsible for getting which kids there, preparing to march in solidarity on Friday and beyond. And I want to take this opportunity to say thank you so much to Maisha to acknowledge you and all of the leaders of the school strikers. You are providing so much leadership, inspiration and momentum. And I want to say to you, Greenpeace stands with you and we will be marching with you on Friday. Thank you. In locations all over Australia, in towns and cities, we are seeing the declaration of climate emergencies. Now, before the federal election, only a few local councils had come out and said it was a climate emergency, but since that election night, the number has soared to almost 50 municipal authorities, together representing almost 5 million Australians. Now, let's not ignore that this is a particular Australian innovation. The climate emergency is a moment of great Australian political leadership through action that may one day be spoken of in the same breath as our other great contributions to global democracy, including the living wage, the secret ballot and voting rights for women. Thank you to Derebin Council, the birthplace of the climate emergency declaration a step that has now been followed by more than a 1,000 jurisdictions in 19 countries around the world, representing hundreds of millions of people. All of this goes to show that Morrison's coalition government and the nation of Australia are not one and the same thing. The government is not the country, and the country is not waiting for the government. Huge amounts of climate action can and is occurring outside of what the Commonwealth Government does or rather does not do. Cities, towns, states, territories, businesses, institutions of all kinds are taking action and can do so much more. Elections come, elections go, but we must retain belief in what is possible and execute our best plans to make it so. And we are doing this because from where we stand today, Australia can still have a flourishing future. The need for leadership has never been greater. But if our politicians won't stand up and do their job, then it is up to the rest of us. Together we can do this. Together we must do this. Together we will do this. And we will do it out of love and respect for our land and for our kids and with all of the creativity and all of the bravery that we can muster to build a new Australia together. The climate movement is determined that Australia shall have a flourishing future. But let me go back to the original question. What now for the government? So I say to Scott Morrison and his government and to all of the politicians in Canberra, if you have neither the wit nor the courage to lead, then at least have the wisdom and the decency to follow. Thank you. As was mentioned earlier, I run an organisation called The Next Economy based in Brisbane. And for the last five years, most of this work has been across Australia, from Townsville in the north to Latrobe Valley down here, um, and even stretching across Australia to South Australia and, and WA. I had a conversation with people in WA the other day about how do we take on this challenge of transitioning our economy from one that's based on fossil fuels to a zero emissions economy? And how do we do it in a way that we bring everyone along with us? What are the economic opportunities? What do the jobs actually look like? So on the ground, what this work looks like is bringing together business leaders, local government, state government, federal government, people from small business, chamber of commerce, um, environment groups, community groups, pretty much everyone across the board, 
into either roundtable discussions to go, what's actually happening here and what can we do about it? Community forums to raise awareness or training with groups on the ground who are saying, we want to start a conversation and we don't know how. And for that five-year period, I've been waiting for the town that's going to run me out of town, that's going to brand me a greenie and go, get out of here, we don't want to talk to you. But I've actually found the opposite. When we sit around and have this conversation, even the most conservative people, when they actually look at what's already happening to reduce and absorb emissions across different sectors in their own place, go, oh, it's already happening. OK, well, that makes sense. Why isn't anyone else talking about this? Because there is so much happening around Australia, and it's happening by and being led by some of the most unlikely suspects. But then earlier this year, something changed. We were running a forum up in Townsville a few weeks before the election, and I sent out the um, notice about the forum to the normal people who promote it for me, people who are responsible for economic development and planning in the region. And I got three separate emails back from women who I knew supported the work and had actually been using the work to, to do what they're doing in regional economic development. They said, I'm really sorry. You know that we love the work. I know that what you're talking about isn't political, but I'm sorry I can't promote your forum. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. And I'd really like to come, but maybe next time. So at this time, when the need for meaningful climate action is so urgent, I'm going to take a bit of a different tack and pose a potentially controversial question. What if we're going about this the wrong way? What if, instead of seeing the climate as a problem to fix or to fight to the death um, with coal and gas industries, what if we actually looked at climate change as a gift, a gift of clarity and a gift of feedback about where we've been going wrong as a society and a sign pointing to where we can do so much better economically, socially and politically. What if we look past the obvious and immediate issue that there are too many and too much greenhouse gas in our atmosphere to recognise the real cause of climate change? That is, an economic system that's based on ext extraction, not only at the expense of the environment, but also of so many people for the benefit of the few. Because the polarisation and the anger and the fear that we're seeing in regional areas, but not just regional areas, is not simply about coal or gas or energy. It's the product of a growing rift in our country that's been exacerbated by 25 years of neoliberal policies that have seen services ripped from communities, increasing extraction of wealth for people in other places somewhere else, growing inequality, increasing insecure work conditions, the dismantling of our welfare system, while the cost of living keeps on increasing. This isn't about coal. This is about the economy, democracy and justice. The disruption of climate change presents us with a unique moment in history where we can choose to do things differently, to transform our systems to not only make sure that no one's left behind, but actually that we could all be better off in the long run. There are so many practical examples I want to give you, but in the time I've got, I'm just going to focus on five. What does this look like? Well, first, let's start by recognising the first peoples of Australia. People with the knowledge and wisdom that saw them through multiple ice ages and other dramatic climatic changes through their long occupation on this continent. People who have been on the front lines of climate impacts, but also the front lines of extraction and resistance. How do we recognise, in a practical and a financial way, the ongoing services that Indigenous groups provide in the way of sequestering carbon, protecting our soils and waterways, and reducing emissions through proper land management? How can remote communities benefit from owning their own renewable energy systems and getting off diesel? Second, let's join in solidarity with workers in the fossil fuel industry to manage this transition with respect and dignity, to show gratitude for the contribution they've made to the prosperity of this nation by supporting them to transition to new jobs, good jobs. How do we get to a place where we can boast, like Germany can at the moment, when we close the last coal mine or plant, that not one worker has been forced into redundancy and that everyone who wants a job has a job. Third, let's recognise the many households that are struggling to make ends meet as work becomes increasingly precarious and the costs continue to rise, leaving nearly one in five households in Australia food insecure. Let's take on the challenge of preparing households for climate impacts in a way that everybody's resilient, starting with making sure that everyone has the access to basics that we all need as a fundamental human right. Food, water, housing, energy, connectivity, transport, health and education. These are not a given everywhere in Australia. Next, let's make sure that in, while we're building the new energy systems, 
we don't, in our haste, replace one extractive system with another. Because we can get to 100% renewable energy very quickly through private companies building large-scale renewable systems across the country. And they'll do it the same way, extracting profits without necessarily putting anything back into regenerating communities and the environment. We, couldn't, we could do this differently. We can take back public control of our utilities and actually see electricity as a public service. And that's what the unions are advocating for. Or we could take advantage of the decentralised nature of the technology to support community-owned renewable energy that builds capacity, wealth and democracy in our local communities. And finally, now is the time to ask how we can build on the tide of public discontent to reinvent democracy in this country, to find ways for people to participate in meaningful and effective ways, to create new spaces for dialogue and, to more importantly, to start listening more and to meet and understand each other where we're at face-to-face. Because I know from my travels across this country that there are unlikely leaders everywhere who want to be part of the solution, and we're not hearing from them right now. So many of them don't identify with the climate movement, and maybe they don't have to. But we do need to find better ways to support them, to make it safe for them to stand up, and to arm them with the practical solutions, confidence and skills that they need to do what they can in their own spheres of influence, whether that's in their industry, their workplace, within government, within schools, within community groups, or even just within their household. Because now is the time. Our nation has been shaken to its core and people everywhere are crying out for answers, for understanding and for connection. It's up to us to meet that call and to appeal to the very best of who we are as Australians. That challenge is immense. We have everything that we need to meet that challenge and to create new systems that place well-being of everyone at their core. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, Before I begin, I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners on whose land we meet today um, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and future. We are using a 19th century form of electricity generation in the 21st century. We are using a form of technology which is two centuries out of date. In an era where having an iPhone just a couple of generations past is socially unacceptable or having a Nokia brick phone is social condemnation, it's unfathomable how we've continued to power our world with coal and fossil fuels. We are overdue for new technology, technology befitting for the 21st century. Tonight we've heard from spirited and intelligent speakers all of whom have been involved in the politics of climate change for several years. But we're missing a voice, the voice of the future generations, us. We are the generation who will be impacted the most by the decisions made today, whether they be wise or foolish. The most terrifying and helpless part of this is that our lives are in your hands. A great number of us cannot vote, and at the federal election this year, we were silenced by the older generations who will ultimately not live long enough to suffer the consequences of climate inaction. Time is our antagonist. The dreary duration of a decade and a bit of education has prevented us from shaping the decisions in the worlds of business, politics, engineering, media, education and science. The bleak reality is that we'll never get there if we don't act now. The time for us to step into the roles of leadership in these realms does not exist. There are only a few grains of sand left in the hourglass. That's why we're taken to the streets to take back time, to take back people power. We're striking from school, from university, from work, to bring the climate crisis to the forefront of Australian and international politics. We are pleading with our politicians to move past toxic partisan politics and find durable solutions to the greatest threat to humanity and human civilization. Tonight, I can rattle off the numbers, drench you in the fear of the desolate future to come. But you know, by the end of the century, we could be up to six degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels. You know that we are going through the sixth mass extinction with up to 200 species going extinct every single day. 
You know that Dubbo in New South Wales will hit day zero this November due to a drought exacerbated by climate change and that vulnerable Australian communities, including our farmers, First Nations people and workers in the fossil fuel industry, will bear the brunt of climate inaction. You know that at this rate, by 2030, Australia's exports and domestic emissions will account for 4.8% of world emissions. So much for 1% not making a difference. These predictions make our blood run cold, but they don't even account for nature's feedback loops or the forecasted climate apartheid. The world will suffer six 2008-style financial crises if we don't act in time. Greta Thunberg is right. Our house is on fire and we must panic. Amidst the panic, we have hope. It's like when you procrastinate for days, postponing that essay that's due and submit it just hours before the deadline under a maelstrom of anxiety and fear for your grades. You are able to create a magnificent piece. Don't tell my teachers I do that. <laughs> the parallels between science and the human condition is outstanding. Diamonds are made under pressure. So are essays by the looks of it. <laughs> Let's take a similar train of thought. Right now, with only a decade left before we reach tipping point, we should be using panic as a fuel to pursue solutions to combat the climate crisis. After the election of the coalition back into parliament with no credible climate policy and our PM acting as a national embarrassment by remaining suspiciously absent from the UN Emergency Climate Summit in New York this September, it's time we the people take action. What else are we supposed to expect from a Prime Minister who declares his undying love for coal in Parliament? Honestly, even Twilight is a better love story. <laughs> <laughs> School Strike for Climate has three key demands. One, say no to new coal, oil and gas projects, including the Adani coal mine. Two, power in Australia with 100% renewable energy by 2030. Three, funding a just transition and job creation for all fossil fuel workers and their communities. While these demands can be met by public policy, we need to look at solutions beyond Canberra. I believe there are three layers to democratic climate action, all of which are interconnected. Business, science and people power. During the federal election, we watched as seats near the Adani coal mine fall to the coalition and I realised we have been preaching to the converted for too long. It's time we include Queenslanders and those who see climate changes irrelevant into the conversation. It's time to speak economics, money and jobs to underscore the systemic crisis which climate change will engender. For a number of Queenslanders, their priority is securing a job which will support their livelihood and their families. If we step into their shoes, we can see that putting food on the table the next night is much more important than the complicated predictions of extreme weather systems. So, how do we encourage them to extend their myopic vision to one that encompasses the consequences of climate inaction? Jobs. Some Australians feel as though pursuing climate action is equivalent to job instability in the fossil fuel industry. Which is why School Strike for Climate added a new demand, calling for funding for a just transition. At a political level, we need a jobs promise or guarantee, which secures a transition for workers in the fossil fuel industry into either renewables or retraining into another industry, with equal or higher pay. In addition to support families, the government must consider a youth guarantee which will see young people from mining communities secure a job after their tertiary studies or apprenticeship. Like Germany, the government needs to collaborate with unions and business figures to ensure justice for all workers and their communities. We can already see faint traces of this with Star of the Sea, an offshore wind project in Gippsland. Businesses must be a key driver for 100% renewables by 2030. Global trends in investment in fossil fuel have tumbled in the past three years, while renewables, as you can expect, have boomed. 
Investors need to not only propel the renewables industry, but also consider how their investments will shape Australia's GDP. We live in a capitalist society. We can't deconstruct that system right now, but we can play it. Adani is being supported by the federal and state governments because purportedly they can bring in revenue for Australia through coal exports. What do renewables have to offer which can supersede coal and LNG exports? Well, West farmers have sold their last coal asset. Win. Now <laughs> investing into the lithium industry to supply lithium hydroxide to Tesla for electric cars. There we go. Materials for electric cars. And if we broaden our horizons, what we see is a myriad of opportunities. Battery storage exports, electric car exports, renewable infrastructure exports, the list goes on. Investors have a soft power within our society and they must use it to play a role in the future of the decarbonisation of our economy. We have unions attending the strike on Friday and pressing for action, but we need all businesses too. By intersecting business with climate energy, we can ensure a secure transition for all workers and continued GDP growth for Australia. The second solution lies in science. Surprise, surprise. As I opened, I noted that we are using a 19th century form of electrical power generation in the 21st century. From the 19th and 20th century, technology has developed exponentially. And it's time we harness our advancements in science to protect our planet. In VCE chemistry, we study fuels and investigate various forms of modern technology in replacing current forms of energy production. Coal-fired power plants are 30 to 40% efficient, which is an issue from both a business and scientific outlook. However, strides in scientific research have given rise to new solutions such as biofuels and fuel cells. Biofuels can be in the form of biogas, which is excellent for rural farming communities who can utilise the methane from animal and plant waste, or biodiesel, which can be produced from plant oils. Fuel cells are my favourite though. As you can tell, I really love chemistry. This incredible form of technology can be up to 90% efficient. That's more than double that of coal power, with the added bonus of being both quiet and clean. The minor issue is that fuel cells require a constant supply of reactants, hydrogen and oxygen gas. What we need in this field is greater research into hydrogen production and storage and investment into the technology itself. As you can see, the intersection between the business and science world is vital to combating climate change. Also, please note that everything I've told you about these new fuel alternatives is actually from my Year 12 VCE course. <laughs> and this is the power of education, finding solutions. Finally, I want to touch on people power. This Friday, September 20th, we are going on strike. We are taking part in our democracy and we are learning what it means to be an active citizen. History has shown us that collective action from the people engenders change from the Vietnam War moratoriums to the recent protests in Hong Kong. But democratic action doesn't just stop at strikes. Talk to your local MP about your concerns about climate change and propose how they too can take action in Parliament, ideally by collaborating and compromising with other political parties. Recently, I met with Jed Carney, the member for Cooper, and convinced her to speak with Susan Lay, the Minister for Environment, about how the Labor and Liberal parties can work together in a bipartisan fashion on climate action. Has she done this? Not too sure. I guess I'll have to check in. Beyond politics, tap into the communities you belong to to instigate conversation around climate, whether that's your sporting team, your union or your weekend yoga class. Set up a trivia night at your local pub to chat about Australia's current stance on emissions and what you too can do about it. From tree plantings to switching to clean energy companies, you might just discover a tycoon or a climate scientist amongst you. And most importantly, make your actions count. It can be as active as joining an environment group or a political party, or simply being conscious of how your money acts as your vote. 
Climate change is the greatest social, economic and moral challenge of this century. And for young people, it's swallowing up our whole future. Our lives are in your hands and the solutions are right before you. We are a train heading full speed into a catastrophe and you, the adults, have the power to pull the brakes. So join us Friday, September 20th, to fight for our one and only planet. Climate denialism and inaction, in the words of Bob Hawke, is an environmental obscenity and an economic absurdity. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.